Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. The art of Emma Amos deserves to be far better known. The Atlanta-born artist died last year. Her works examine race, class, and gender in bold and colorful mixed-media paintings. Later this hour... Curator Shania Harris will tell us about a new exhibition of 60 works by Emma Amos on view at the Georgia Museum of Art. First, though the topic of immigration has been controversial throughout much of our nation's history, there is no denying how much immigrants have added to American culture. On that topic today, we begin a new series, Culture Crash, with director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theater Company. Adam, thanks for zooming in, and welcome back to City Lights. As always, it's a great pleasure to be here. We are drawing upon your academic and career expertise here. In what ways does American acting illustrate the contributions of immigrants? We don't have any pure acting culture here, Lois, devoid of all of the inputs that have come from other places. And the main source of most American film acting and most American theater acting comes from Russia around the turn of the century, the last century. Around 1900, there was a huge flowering of research about what acting is, what it constitutes. And that revolution, you know, there was the actual Russian political revolution, but the cultural revolution of essentially inventing a whole new way of seeing theater and acting changed how people train and that eventually made its way to America. And even though we talk about this American actor, this American style, so much of it comes from Russia. And I think we'll get a chance to talk about some of those pathways today and how immigrants and this Russian style became essentially an American style. 
Exciting. So what examples of acting technique have you chosen for us today? Well, I'd like to start off by listening to Meryl Streep and her Devil Wears Prada. Both those belts look exactly the same to me. You know, I'm still learning about this stuff and... uh... This stuff? Oh, okay. I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back, but what you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue, it's not turquoise, it's not lapis, it's actually cerulean. And you're also blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns, and then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets? I think we need a jacket here. Mm. And then Cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it uh, filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact... You're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. So what is quintessentially American, which is to say immigrant inflected in Meryl Streep scene here, Adam? So Meryl Streep across her career and, you know, so celebrated and part of what she gets credit for is total transformation, character to character. She's completely different. She is of herself. It's always a bit of, I mean, it's Meryl Streep's voice, it's Meryl Streep's body, but she seems like she's a totally different person. And when watching The Devil Wears Prada or Kramer versus Kramer or The French Lieutenant's Woman or Mamma Mia, one has this sense that Meryl Streep has completely turned herself into the character. And she then is credited as one of America's great method actors. She's in the same group as De Niro and Pacino and Denzel Washington. And so it's this idea that she has, with her acting technique, completely changed who she is and fully become, transformed herself into this character. And this idea of that you can do that, that you can do it in a repeatable way again and again, and that there's a technique for it is the revolution. We talk about method actors and it's kind of a joke because they're really, that phrase doesn't really mean anything. It really, it, it, what it refers to is that these actors have an intensity and a method for transforming themselves. And that's what dates back to Russia. When you've had so many actors uh, over the years on your show, do they talk about their technique and how they transform themselves? Not always, no. I've asked people what they draw from to create a character. I guess the most recent actor conversation I had 
was with Coleman Domingo, who is someone I admire tremendously. And he was also talking about Chadwick Boseman in Mulraney's Black Bottom. And my impression is that they don't have to go back too far to draw upon the agony of racial injustice or personal experience with persecution. See, now, what you just said is so interesting, Lois, that you would ask, what do you draw upon or go too far back to empathize or resonate or use your imagination to call on personal experience to create a part? Those things haven't always been true in how people have thought about the act of performance and how people have written about it. Now, some people may have, but there was certainly no system and there's no consistent way of talking about it. And an interviewer in 1900 wouldn't have even thought to ask the question the way you did. So who, uh, it, whose method is it? Is that Stanislavski's method? So Stanislavski gets the lion's share of the credit. Now, he had a whole community of people around him that were experimentalists with him, but he founded at the end of the 1800s, a theater in Moscow with the idea of after years of seeing what you, what you and I would call hammy acting, you know, stuff that is the sort of hallmark of the high school theater production. He said, there has to be a better way of doing this and there has to be a better way of teaching it. And so he, a total experimentalist, he started to say to himself, what if we, instead of just saying the lines in a very dramatic way, we tried to animate what was happening by practicing and systematizing the, the way we imagine it on the inside, the way we picture it on the inside. The, if we have consistent tools to use your language to draw from, then that will totally influence what comes out on stage. And keep in mind, this is coinciding with the birth of psychology and Freud and the, all of that. And so this idea of systematizing how an actor could use their imagination was totally revolutionary, hadn't been done before. A key thing that is also important about Stanislavski was he was very much the kind of, we also, it wasn't just psychology. He was so curious about what the acting instrument was that people were doing yoga, they were learning fencing, they were singing, and all of these elements of actor training were part of his system or method. So I have not gone into an American rehearsal studio ever is in my, the entirety of my career where language from the Stanislavski system wasn't part of the day-to-day -day culture of how we speak in the rehearsal room, 100% of the time. And people who don't always recognize that for what it is, you know, I could probably persuade them over time. So as a director, do you employ those techniques to draw from your actors the interpretation that you want? Absolutely. I, I want to emphasize here that the Stanislavski came up with the real revolution is that you could systematize the teaching of acting. 
and that there were certain principles that were important in that the, the very idea that you could have an inner life imaginatively practice it and have it revealed on stage was itself this huge new idea and so when we're talking with actors you know whether actor a imagines their own cat dying to to draw on tears or they have a beautiful imagination to picture exactly what happened to the character and that brings out their tears or you know they do that in rehearsal one with their cat and rehearsal two with their imagination and rehearsal three imagining something totally different in rehearsal four they're picturing an image of fire and that brings out a new flavor all of those happen every day in rehearsal, but what happens is that the idea that I might give an effect, I need for the character to be very angry, I need for the character to cry right here, I need for the, and that the actor would have a technique to translate that and figure out something that works for them dates back to Stanislavski as a, as a way of working. Okay, well, let's take a leap maybe 50 years or so after Stanislavski and go from Russia to a movie set in New Orleans. And I think perhaps one of the most famous examples of inhabiting a character is Marlon Brando in A Streetcar Named Desire. You put that howling down there and go to bed. Joss, I want my clothes out here. You shut up. You're going to get the law on hey, you. Stella. You can't on a woman and then call her back because she ain't going to come. You're going to have a baby. Listen, you I'll must... say haul you in and turn a file. Joss, I want my clothes down here. You stink. Hey, Stella! that idea of yelling Stella became iconic for people talking about method actors because Marlon Brando became the iconic method actor. And it was so magical, this idea of him being so important in the culture, this brute who is also vulnerable, this presence that you couldn't take your eyes off. People wanted to know, how do you get that? How do I become more like Marlon Brando? And in doing so, that made people very curious about what is his method and what is a method actor. And so from that, we work a little bit backwards. Marlon Brando studied with a wonderful acting teacher named Stella Adler. Stella Adler was part of the group. Literally, she was part of a group called the Greer that was largely a bunch of immigrants, children, Jewish, Italian, Greek, and they together created this theater and were very curious about revolutionizing American theater. And they knew that the ingredient they were to do it was Stanislavski's technique. And so at first they, a little bit of their information about what the Russians were doing trickled in and they started doing their own exercises similar to what the Russians were doing. And then one by one, Harold Klerman, Lee Strasberg, Elia Kazan, they had the opportunity to go and in some cases sit at the foot of the master 
and learn about Stanislavski's technique. And then they internalized it and they iterated on it for themselves. And then they taught students who did it themselves. And this is this is this pathway that I think is so important. So in immigrant, you know, that Jacob Adler, Stella Adler's dad was an immigrant from Eastern Europe and became one of the hugest stars of the Yiddish theater in America. So huge that he had his own theater and so huge that it allowed for an interest in how people act. When Stanislavski came to America for the first time, there were press pictures of him standing arm in arm with Jacob Adler. So this gives a young Stella the sense that there's a, there's a new way to act. There's a new way. And so Stella gets curious. She partners with people in the theater. Eventually she goes and sits at the foot of the master. She has her own doing it and she teaches Marlon Brando. So I just, if you think, and then Marlon Brando becomes this iconic American presence that people think of as the quintessential American actor inspires people all around the world. But if you work backwards, Marlon Brando gets it because Stella Adler gets it. Stella Adler gets it because her immigrant dad is inspired by it and because she goes and travels and sits at the foot of the master. So this idea that our American culture, Marlon Brando, the American American's actor and streetcar named Desire gets to us on a culture crash pathway. There, that there is this sort of mashup and hybrid that involves origin somewhere else, immigration, but a little bit of real American specificity. Can we actually hear from Stella Adler herself? And we'll hear that it was so important for her to have every actor pull from their own experience. Now let's talk for a minute about the norm, shall we? Do you know what I mean by norm? Well, the norm for an actor is not the norm of a, not somebody else's norm. It's not some image that's given to you of a glamorous person and you want to be them. Because the moment you want to be like somebody else, you will sacrifice one of the greatest gifts that a man inherits, and that is being himself. Now, on the other hand, you must understand that even Mr. Olivier can stand on his head but he can't be you. Only you can be you. That's great. How many people need approval? That's the big disease. That's the biggest disease. We all have it. Listen, I have all these things, so don't you think of me, you know? Uh, I fight it. I must say, I fight it down so that I understand it. Now, the sense of approval is uh, something that you have to overcome. She speaks in sort of a stagey, actorly way. It is somewhat mannered, isn't it? It's kind of, she, that's just who she was. Okay. That does not sound like a Yiddish uh, daughter. No, isn't that wonderful? By the time she was that, she was a grand dame by that point. Yes, she was. Her dad, Jacob Adler, was so popular. I mean, such a major star that he built in New York, lines around the block for 10 years worth of shows. Anyhow, you know, she, she does sound totally mannered, but that's, again, that's just her. It's part of her, the delight of Stella Adler. Okay. Well, finally, let's go with a comic scene that is especially 
especially dear to me. And this is from the original film version of The Producers, 1967, a scene with Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel. I'm hysterical. I'm having hysterics. I'm hysterical. I can't stop when I get like this. I can't stop. I'm hysterical. I'm wet. I'm wet. I'm hysterical and I'm wet. I'm in pain and I'm wet. And I'm still hysterical. No, no, don't hit it, don't hit it. It doesn't help, it only increases my sense of danger. What can I do, uh, what can I do? You can't make me hysterical. Go away, go away, you frighten me. Where's my Sit over there. <laughs> so, um, first of all, hilarious. And I think so important that we look at a comedy scene here. We have this idea that the method acting revolution was about characters like Stanley Kowalski and Streetcar Named Desire, that the actors would, you know, in this muscular way, transform themselves into these dramatic roles. But the revolution of Stanislavski was important for every genre of actor. And in, because all of the Stanislavski types say, what you do, it's the same. You have to think moment to moment. You have to animate your thoughts. You have to have an inner life. And so the, it's as important or more important in comedy than it is in drama. And most of our great comic actors in some way have studied a bit of or tasted from the fountain of the Stanislavski technique. And Gene Wilder not only did he study for three years with at HB Studios with Uta Hagen and Herbert Berdoff. He also, after that wasn't quite intense enough for him, he went to the actor's studio where he studied with Lee Strasberg, another disciple. So all three of his main training inputs were Stanislavski, Stanislavski, Stanislavski. And it outputs this wonderfully delightful manic performance. And I would say that Part of what happened that we got to this conversation and we got to this performance, Lois, is that I had asked you what some of your favorite performances were. And you had sent me this list of, you know, great performance after great performance. And it was sort of my job to see if I could trace back the influence to Stanislavski. And in a hundred percent of the performances you sent over, it was within two degrees of separation. Ah, and here I was afraid of being lowbrow. <laughs> right. As an absurd concern, if ever there was one. <laughs> so ultimately, Adam, we realize America does not have any pure artistic artistic forms, as you've illustrated, with all of these American actors' techniques. Everything we create is a hybrid. You know, I think in some ways the myth of purity is one that uh, isn't just in arts. I think of an interview with Elaine Pagels, the author of the Gnostic Gospels. She's a professor of religion at Princeton University. And she kept thinking, you know, if I go back 
earlier and earlier in church history, which is why she studies first and second century church history, I will find purity. I will find this devoid of all of the influences of history. I will find purity. And she says, crazily enough, the further you go back, the more of a constellation of influences that you find in the church, not a pure voice. And I think that that's probably as true in culture. And so if we think of Stanislavski as this pure voice, the Russian source, you go back and really study Stanislavski, he sent off his disciples across the world for inputs for the technique. He had people making a road trip from Russia to India where they could pick up yoga techniques because he was so convinced that actors needed a deeper mind-body connection and the relaxation and the connection between mind-body he felt was clearer in Indian yogic practice. So a lot of the system has that influence. The point being all culture is a culture crash and anything that ever seems pure isn't. You always can go back to a constellation of influences. Adam, this has been fascinating and I look forward to future conversations about culture crash in American life. Thank you very much. My great pleasure. Director Adam Copeland is the artistic director of Flying Carpet Theatre Company and also the curator of our new City Light series, Culture Crash. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The art of Emma Amos deserves to be far better known. A new exhibition of nearly 60 works by Emma Amos will be on view at the Georgia Museum of Art. Shania Harris is the curator of African-American and African diasporic art for the museum. She joins us now via Zoom. Shania, welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me, Lois. For those unfamiliar with the Atlanta painter and printmaker Emma Amos, how would you describe her work? Well, I would describe her work as being pretty eclectic. Not only was she a painter and printmaker, she was also a weaver. And you'll see that in the majority of the works that we have on display that her use of things that are related to her uh, profession, her earlier profession as a weaver and a textile designer interplay a lot with her, much of her later work um, or the work throughout her career. 
And I think that it's that mix of materials and the kind of meanings that she's able to attach to all these different types of materials is which what what you're kind of noting as what makes it so rich and so vibrant visually as well as in terms of uh, content. Yeah. In fact, visually rich is exactly what comes to mind because the bold use of color, the varying textures are also pleasing to take in and yet there's a whole lot of history and narrative and intersection taking place as well. You mentioned her use of fabrics. What kind of African fabrics would she employ? Her history is really interesting because when she originally began weaving, she created her own textile. So some of the works in the exhibition show examples of her own weavings. When she worked for a designer named Dorothy Leaves, who's pretty uh, well-known um, in the kind of the design industry, uh, working with all kinds of commercial products, but also, you know, there's a, a great de deal of artistry that was involved. But later, uh, Amos began to really incorporate African fabrics, um, West African fabrics, more or less. Um, everything from kente cloth, Malian cloth, you know, from uh, Burkina Faso, and, and so forth. So there's a mix of things that she both wove herself, but also fabric that she may have purchased in markets in New York or when she traveled um, to other places that may have had African fabrics or African fabric traders. And she really does a great uh, job of trying to not only, you know, incorporate these fabrics to give her works a sense of beauty, but also a sense of movement. And that's one of the uh, subtext that comes out early in her work is that she incorporated textile not just for decorative purposes, but actually to give her your figures or the narratives that were contained within um, her compositions a sense of movement or a kind of a freeform uh, quality to them. Mm. What period of her life do those large-scale canvases using African fabrics date from? Most of those works date from the mid uh, to late 1980s um, and particularly through the 90s and you know onward um, toward the end of her career. So she shifted from using a lot of her own woven fabric uh, to more manufactured Dutch wax printed uh, fabrics, or as I mentioned before, mud cloth or kente cloth from West African countries. So a lot of that started in the late 80s when she began different series of works, whether they be uh, one that we have um, some works from called the Water Series, where she depicts athletes who are swimmers or divers, and then another series called the Falling Series, which we also have some works from. And I, and I should say that probably using the word series sounds like it has a beginning and an ending, but she many of these themes recur in later works that might not have been a part of an earlier set of works. But the African fabric pretty much dominates from the 1980s onward. Shania, how did Emma Amos examine racism, address sexism, and privilege 
in her artwork? Well, Amos went through kind of a series of, how should I say, transformations when, um, in terms of how she dealt with a lot of those topics. In the 1960s, she was involved with an organization or a, a short-lived but important um, artist collective named Spiral that was had um, Romare Bearden, uh, Norman Lewis, some of the big names in African-American art, uh, as well as someone that she always wanted to be her mentor, even from childhood, um, that you would, might be familiar with, Hale Woodruff, who taught at Atlanta University uh, or Atlanta University Center um, during the 19, I think it was through the 1930s and 40s until he came to uh, New York University in the mid 40s and began teaching there. So Amos began a Master of Arts program at NYU University and then she caught up with Hale Woodruff who looked at some of the printmaking she had done while she was in London uh, as a student and he became enamored and invited her to the group. So that group uh, largely was trying to define how black art uh, should be, you know, what are some of the issues around black art and how black artists should tackle issues like civil rights in their work. And there was a lot of debate, you know, about what black artists should depict, whether it should be representational or whether it should be up to them. And Amos was involved in all of those uh, debates in that group. She was the youngest, she was a woman, but she also began to note kind of her unique status as a woman. You kind of see it coming out in those earlier paintings where you know she's depicting even herself and her place in the world. And then later on, as she began to take on other projects uh, as an artist, when she began to teach at Rutgers University, she became involved with a collective called the Heresies Collective that had an important journal. She, we found out later on in researching her that she also was involved in another notable women artist collective, a feminist artist collective called the Gorilla Girls. And I'm still trying to figure out which one she was. I think I know which one she might've been. <laughs> so, you know, because it was a clandestine group. So with all of these groups that she became involved with and just in her own evolving time, uh, with her work, dealing with being motherhood and being a wife and trying to have a career. She had different levels of engagement with other artists who were facing many of the same issues. And she began to evolve in her thought about her place in the art world as a woman and as a Black woman. Hmm. Looking over the preparatory material and seeing the images you provided, I'm astonished that we don't know more about her, that Emma Amos isn't a name that we think of alongside of Hale Woodruff, Romare Bearden, or more contemporary of hers, perhaps David Hockney or Alex Katz. Do you think it was because she was female? Well, Amos, while uh, she was actively creating art and teaching, she, you know, she did some writing and, you know, and even some newspaper editorials. And one that comes to mind uh, that she did for the New York Times, where she talks about being invisible um, as a woman, a black woman artist. And, you know, the one of the lines was, they only show me during Black History Month, which I find kind of ironic because her show opens up here. <laughs> 
around Black History Month, but but I think she would understand. It's past Black History Month. We, we're not going to take her down in, at the end of February. But um, you know, she talked about this kind of level of invisibility that are faced by Black artists, but particularly women artists, um, and how often it's at in the other things that you know I've read. She talks about how oftentimes, you know, it's at the end of uh, an artist's life that, um, and it's kind of a little prescient of her to have mentioned that, that the notoriety begins to come and trying to find ways to combat that through her work or by dealing with issues of patriarchy or racism, sexism, um, you know, was, was really important to her. And she always seemed to place herself in the center of that debate. She realized that she wasn't just depicting things apart from that debate, that she was principally a part of it. And that's why you see a lot of works in the exhibition that where she inserts herself, her own self-portrait in different scenarios, uh, whether it be on a tightrope or whether she's falling through the air or whether she's um, you know, just creating a self-portrait that's assertive and confirming her presence um, in this largely rarefied art world that she had entered. Shania Harris is curator of African-American and African diasporic art for the Georgia Museum of Art. We'll be back with more of this conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with Shania Harris, curator of African-American and African diasporic art for the Georgia Museum of Art. We're talking about the museum's new exhibition, Emma Amos, Color Odyssey, which highlights the artist's rich body of work. Amos once told the art historian Lucy Lippert, every time I think about color, it's a political statement. Why did she think colors on the palette were inseparable from politics? One clue is early on, there's an interview of her that is is a great source of information um, in the late 1960s, where she talks about how even as a black artist, everything is about color. You know, um, you know everything, I mean, in terms of how people viewed artists during that period where, you know, she wanted people to look at the color in her paintings, but not the color of her skin. But she found it very difficult to be divorced from color uh, as a concept, a social construct and not just a, uh, construct artistically. And so she began to kind of look at that aspect and when she's, for example, doing her own self-portrait. One of the things that's interesting is that whenever she did self-portrait, she always depicted herself differently in terms of range of skin color. She was a very fair-skinned woman, but sometimes she would depict herself as kind of brown paper bag, tan, sometimes really, really fair-skinned where you she, you couldn't differentiate her from being maybe Caucasian then sometimes much darker. Even uh, we have some works where she begins looking at 
texture of hair, phenotypical differences that are kind of a range uh, in terms of African-American culture. And she's kind of making a comment on how there's so much diversity within this notion of Blackness. Uh, and she also accepts that's a part of who she is, but also the range of mixture in other ways. Like she's often been um, interviewed and she talks about how she has Native American ancestry, Norwegian ancestry uh, on her mother and father's side of the family and how that crucible of, of, of difference uh, is a part of even her experience as an African-American in this country. And a lot of other people um, would you know, say the same. And so it's, Amos felt like it was a much more complex uh, notion when you're dealing with race and when you're dealing with this notion of color and how it often gets ascribed uh, to individuals. Hmm. So color for her was truly political. Listening to your description, brings home what a marvelous and active intellect she was, which is all the more tragic that she died from Alzheimer's just in May of last year, age 83. Was this exhibition already on your calendar before her death? Yes, it was. In fact, someone told me last week that they actually read somewhere where Amos was actually talking about the upcoming exhibition. And I knew that there was an earlier interview a few years ago where she was lucid enough to, you know, make a note that, hey, I have an exhibition coming up in a few, you know, in a few years. Well, as late as I think late 2019, she mentioned it again. And I, it almost brought me to tears because I, I thought at that point, you know, of her, you know, memory loss, she wouldn't remember, but she mentioned it to someone um, publicly. And to know that, you know, the artist could kind of see how the different courses of her career would come back to Georgia and, and travel and we'd be able to do a publication and that she was happy and excited about that, even at the latter portion of her time on, on this earth was, was very flattering for me. And, uh, I got to know Amos probably about a decade ago. And I mean, she was a wonderful personality, visited her studio frequently, uh, spent a lot of time with her. She had a very maternal side to her, um, very warm. Uh, and, you know, there's one artist who wrote in our catalog, uh, notable photographer, Latoya Ruby Frazier, had the same experience. And we talked over the phone about it, you know, how we had, you know, she was just, just a warm person. And to see this kind of even, and it's kind of ironic that this is happening during a pandemic, but maybe not so ironic because Amos always dealt with this whole principle of uncertainty and in many of her works. And that's what we're all facing now is notions around uncertainty and survival and, um, and you know, resilience. And so I think that uh, you know, although I thought it was ironic that it's happening, it's not so ironic that Amos's exhibition would be showing now. The museum is publishing a scholarly exhibition catalog to accompany the show with one of your works. Would you tell us 
about your essay in the catalog? Well, um, my essay, you know, I've served as both kind of the editor as well as um, a contributor to the catalog. I generally focus my essay around kind of giving an overview of the artist's life and some of the key moments uh, and key influences. You know, there's always more to write about. There's, you know, I was thinking um, this morning, you know, I wish I could have done this. I wish I could have done that, uh, you know, in a certain amount of time that we have to produce the publication. But it's largely an overview where you, you find yourself when we were putting it together, there's always a new image. There's always a new work of art that, you know, you just can't get it all in. And, and what I'm hoping is that the publication with all the great essayists that we have contributing as well as my essay will begin a dialogue and a discourse around Amos's work for future projects that uh, may include it. And it could be somewhat of a, a, a resource to get people thinking about some of the, the issues there. I'm curious about how many works in this retrospective are part of the Georgia Museum's collection. We have actually three works that are a part, three works on paper um, in the um, exhibition that'll be both here and both and also uh, traveling to um, New York as well as to Philadelphia. And so we're really excited about that. We have an early work that we believe was exhibited, may have been exhibited in Amos's first exhibition that took place in, her first exhibition in Atlanta. I don't wanna say that if she had never exhibited before, but her first solo exhibition in Atlanta um, in 1960. Uh, she would have produced it in uh, London. It would have been one of her early etchings. And we've kind of paired it with and um, another version of it, a smaller version of it that she may have done uh, in New York. So there's this kind of link between her early period where she's delving in abstraction um, and then, you know, her migration to New York, which is the real beginning of her, you know, her fuller artistic career. There's so many marvelous pieces in this show. One that particularly stands out is Emma Amos's painting, Tightrope. Would you describe this portrait and what she's trying to convey? Well, in Tightrope, which is a very well reproduced um, uh, painting, by the way, it's very popular. I've seen it reproduced in a lot of illustrated books and so forth that deal with feminism or you know, African-American art or black women artists um, and so forth. It depicts Amos um, who's wearing kind of like a house coat, like a black lace house coat. And she has a Wonder Woman uh, costume underneath uh, her, her lace house coat, who's she's suspended and walking on a tightrope. And, you know, she has this kind of, you know, more abstract kind of mob of eyes that are watching her from below. And, you know, she looks like a circus act and she's kind of, and she's what she's holding in one of her hands is her paintbrushes in a kind of precarious way. She's got her fingers kind of curled around it. And then in the other hand that she's holding what looks to be a t-shirt that shows the torso of one of Gauguin's or his, his child bride, Teyamana. 
And she's talked in lectures in the past about how abusive she viewed that relationship being a child bride who ends up getting syphilis from that really great artist, uh, modern artist uh, that everybody loves. But the backstory of this woman who was the muse in many of his paintings, which she's actually extracting that torso image, but also there's some images of the of the painting itself that she's photo transferred into the edges of her canvas. She's showing that, hey, you know, she's kind of aligning herself with that kind of subjugated history of women, but also, you know, she loved a lot of these artists. She loved Matisse, she loved Gauguin, she loved uh, Picasso, but she also critiques them that they're a part of often the patriarchal culture that she critiques and how it impacts her as an artist is that she's fighting a lot of the stereotypes and fighting some of the abusive representation of women that she finds in her own study of past art, you know, world art traditions. And so Amos kind of takes on this role of a superwoman who's trying to save, you know, the uh, not only representations of women, but her own representation for that matter as an artist. And it's a precarious place to be in. So she's on the tightrope. Shania Harris is curator of African-American and African diasporic art for the Georgia Museum of Art in Athens. Emma Amos, Color Odyssey, will be on view at the museum through April 25th. More information about this show will appear on our website at wabe.org org slash city lights. Hugh Atchison is a James Beard Award-winning chef and Georgia restaurateur. He joined me in November when his new cookbook came out, How to Cook, Building Blocks, and 100 Simple Recipes for a Lifetime of Meals, is a love letter to his kids. You know, I started writing a list for my kids about 10 years ago, and it's gotten to be, and this is a small atomizing of it, but it's just mantras for living. It's it's ways to think about the world that I want them to look through the prism of of the good that I've I've figured out in this life so far and and to just give them a helping hand and how to be a in, inclusive member of a community and a and a part of a family and, and, and all these things. So it's just sort of, you know, it's ways to think about things. And, you know, if it's, if there's trash on the ground, pick it up. Or if it's no one has a loving memory of a meal of pizza pockets, I think it's just important to remind them about where the goodness is in the world. Would you want to read it? Do you want to talk about a few more highlights or should we save that for readers of How to Cook? You know, I mean, it goes through, there, there's, I have a much longer list that I pushed on Instagram years ago, which, you know, said it's instructions and wariness, some of them, but it's also things like learn how to use a chainsaw. It might come in handy someday, but you know, these ones are tip well and salt is a flavor enhancer. So is MSG. There's nothing wrong with either in moderation. You know, you don't grocery shop while hungry. You know, it's things that our parents taught us, but Sometimes these things need to be written down so we remember. But the most poignant thing about having that list on Instagram is that I got a ton of messages about people mimicking 
that list and, and making their own for their own kids and posting on our fridge. And that becomes just a relevant family document for the entirety of everyone's lives within that household. And, and I think we need more of that these days. Oh, I think it's beautiful. My favorite item on the list is feed your friends and family. Feed kind strangers. Realize the power of giving nourishment. You know, nourishment is such a powerful word these days. You know, the, the pandemic has been so crazy for everyone and everybody's working so hard to try and figure it out and deal with isolation and mental health. But but the difference, the sincere difference between nutrition and nourishment is, is just so uh, amazingly abundant right now. Nourishment implies it's warmth, it's empathy, it's understanding. There's an emotional versus just the scientific aspect of nutrition, which is sustenance. But nourishment is another level that I think that we all are yearning for right now. And if there's anything that good that comes out of a pandemic, it's a willingness and a want for people to learn how to cook again, which we've seen across the country and across the world. Because, well, if you're locked in your house for 24 hours a day, you have to do something. James Beard Award-winning chef and Georgia restaurateur Hugh Atchison discussing tips from his cookbook, How to Cook, Building Blocks and 100 Simple Recipes for a Lifetime of Meals. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. City Lights producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Shelley Canavy is our engineer, and I'm your host, Lois Wrightsis. I would so love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thank you for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.